Hello everyone, welcome to our Virtual 67 Pall Mall. Uh, tonight uh, we welcome back one of our old favourites, Jasper Morris, MW, author of Inside Burgundy, who's going to be talking about some of his favourite Christmas wines. Uh, I suspect there might be a couple of Pinots in there, but maybe I might be surprised. Um, so please do chat away on the side, share with us what you're drinking and where you're drinking it from, and put your photos on social media with hashtag 67fromhome. As usual, at the end, we'll have 15 minutes to ask Jasper questions, and a big welcome back, Jasper. How are you, Jasper? I'm very well indeed, I thank you. And how about you, Brennan? Um, very well, thank you. Yeah, we've been at the club today, we've been busy. Uh, we're open for maybe a short period of time while... Um, uh, while the Prime Minister decides if we're going to T3 lockdown or not. But for the moment, we're up and running and being quite busy, so. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. Well, it's been uh, bitterly cold here in Burgundy, just above freezing, damp, grey. Um, I've also had the pleasure of having um, things stuck up my nose today, so I went to get uh, <laughs> prior to the Ospice to Bone auction on Sunday, where they want everybody who's okay. in it to, to be tested, so. Right. Back, that will come back negative. Hopefully. Yeah, so so Sunday for the Ospice to Bone. That's good. Yes, yes, yes. Very exciting. So, I mean, only, only a month late, but... Uh, yeah, yeah. Less. We will, we will be there. It will happen. Great. Well, Jasper, we're very excited to hear what a man of your stature is going to be drinking on Christmas Day. So I will let you carry on. Okay. Well, it won't uh, necessarily be exactly these wines, but I've just used the concept of Christmas as a, a peg to hang things on. Um, there are what these are wines which I particularly adore. They have some sort of um, Christmas relevance, uh, I, uh, I I hope, and uh, um, they're also made mostly by people who I've known very well for a very long time and have hugely enjoyed uh, the wines thereof. So we actually um, <clears throat> Christmas for us is only ever just myself and my wife. Um, and uh, this year will be our, our 34th Christmas together. And uh, we've got into, a, I suppose you could call it a routine, but one that uh, makes me very cheerful. And uh, it's partly because um, Abigail, my wife, um, is of a Scandinavian family. Uh, she's American by birth, English by marriage, Burgundian by adoption, and uh, but Scandinavian Danish uh, in family. And Scandinavians, of course, uh, like to celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve. But uh, myself being English all the way through, I have decided that uh, we also need to celebrate it on Christmas Day. So in fact, we have a, uh, a double uh, Christmas blowout, two large meals with excellent wines. When we were younger, we would have a, a full bottle of each wine um, on both Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Nowadays, we just have a full bottle of red for each meal and uh, the champagne, the champagne, probably a second bottle gets opened, the white wine and Lady Sweet Wine or Port or anything like that uh, tend to hang on for day two uh, and, uh, and thereafter if need be. So I will go through um, periodically some of our particular routines. Um, do please join in with your own comments uh, on the chat, as one or two of you have already done. Uh, and uh, let me know what you're thinking about the wines as we come to them, those of you who've, who've signed up to get these wines. So to kick off is actually the wine that I have only discovered the most recently of all of them. In fact, the, the person who, who pushed me in the direction of um, <clears throat> this domain because he came up for dinner one night and he brought a, 
uh, an old vintage of, uh, of the white Sauvignon. And uh, this, uh, William Kelly very kindly um, brought it up and, uh, and we thoroughly enjoyed it. And later that year, I went along and tasted the new vintage and uh, been back each year since. I'm not a great fan in general of white wines from the red wine appellations of Burgundy. There's too much happening, um, be it uh, Sauvignon, uh, Montelis, um, Ossie de Rest probably is fairly white terroir for at least half the appellation. Sontenay, uh, Marange, um, various other appellations like that, uh, Bone itself, um, where people have maybe got more reds than they can easily sell and think, well, I haven't got much in the way of white in my armory, so let's um, convert a few vineyards. I'm sort of disappointed in the areas which are not white wine territory. Uh, and the thing which frustrates me as well is that it makes commercial sense for the growers to do it. Because typically, um, it's probably less expensive to make in the first place. You get bigger yields in most years from the whites. You probably take them to market a little bit earlier. And what's crazy is that all these appellations, the whites tend to sell for a higher price than the equivalent red. Um, so that's why it's been happening. Um, however, several of these villages do have terroir which is suited to whites. And uh, if I can ask Ronan to put the 70 map up on the screen. Here we have 70 Le Bone. And as some of you will know, uh, if you follow the river which runs through the middle uh, of that map, further up by another 10 miles or so, you will come to a village called Bouillon, which is where I live. Um, <clears throat> now, most of Savigny is going to be red. Uh, there's one Premier Cru which works very well in white, uh, which is Savigny Les Vergeles, so absolutely bang next door to Pernod Vergeles, as you would imagine. So it's here, and particularly if you're higher on the slope, uh, a little bit the same way as the hillside of Corton. As you go up the slope towards where the forest begins, you get um, a white marl, a layer of white marl, which is quite conducive to white wines. There may be one or two other spots, but otherwise, the really key area uh, is up here at the back of the village. You're going some way up this, this uh, valley. And even though it's south-facing vineyards, they're sort of hidden by the slope opposite. And where we are today is in the Dessus des Golades there, but actually pretty much all this area surrounding it. Um, though some of it is now being built over, I'm sorry to say, little rabbit hutches. Um, but apart from that, uh, this is white wine territory. Um, thanks for that, Ronan. Probably lose the, lose the map. Um, <clears throat> so, back to normal view, thank you. Uh, this is called the Savigny Les Bones, Dessus Les Gollards, lovely name, made by uh, Domaine Pierre Guillem, struggle to pronounce this one, Guillemo or uh, like a guillemot uh, uh, seabird, but uh, Guillermo, I think, in French. Um, long established men. Pierre is grandfather of uh, the current lads. Um, and I tasted this year with Vincent, I assume, because his brother is so voluble. Quite often, if you get two brothers, one of them is quiet and one of them is noisy. And I thought, um, having had the noisy one, I get the quiet one. But he was even noisier, just full of ideas and all the rest of it. But uh, uh, Terrific fun, and they make beautiful wines. The reds have a certain amount of whole bunch in them uh, and are lighter in color and, and very fragrant. There's a particularly good Premier Cru called Serpentier, 
and then uh, the white is this, the only white they have is this 70, this you, they got out. But this is a wine that can age really well, 20, 30, 40 years. Um, and each time I try and persuade them to open me a bottle of something older at the end of the tasting. So we got an in-between age here, 2015. Um, do I need to re because I've moved something else into that glass. 2015, so it's a pretty rich, ripe vintage. Um, 2015, a precursor, if you like, of our 18s, 19s and 20s. Um, the good news was um, that by the time 2015 came around, people had learned how to make whites in these warmer years. Most people picked their 09s too late, but they got it right in 2015. So you just get a little bit more weight, fruit depth, um, a little bit less finesse in the bouquet while the wines are young, but they taste balanced and they don't taste too hot and they aren't flabby on the whole. There's a year with um, very reasonable acidity too. It's a wine that does have some personality, whereas the white Savonese grown where you shouldn't be planting whites are just straightforward, anonymous Chardonnays. Also the length of flavor in this wine. Uh, hard put to give you very specific fruit flavors. Never especially like doing that anyway. Um, but in this riper vintage, we're moving a little bit towards the, uh, the yellow fruits, the, the plums and so on. Incidentally, um, I don't know if any of you uh, uh, have got this and are tasting this. Um, one thing to point out about the uh, varietal um, profile here is that it's only 30% um, Chardonnay and 70% is from Pinot Blanc of uh, the Pinot Gouge strain, i.e. the Pinot Noir that then defected to the white camp all those years ago. Uh, and old man um, uh, Guillermo was obviously good friends with old man Gouge because this was planted in uh, the year of my birth. So uh, I think we can call it relatively old vines, but still in good condition. Uh, so it must have been very soon after the original Pinot Gouge um, joined in. Uh, I, I haven't actually tasted this 2015 before, but it's got cracking notes in the 2017, 2018, and the next week or so I should be writing up the 2019. Grand, you're being quite silent on the uh, chat so far tonight, but uh, please do keep your keep your comments coming, especially if you've got um, the wines to taste. Uh, let me know how you're getting on. So what I didn't put into the mix today is champagne because it'd be pretty difficult to do the samples. And anyway, the best thing to do with champagne is just open a full bottle and start drinking um, rather than um, um, uh, sort of tasting it analytically. A couple of people have said that this domain is new to them. It's handled in the UK by AMB Vintners. Um, and uh, uh, it's, it's, I think it's, it's really exciting. I took a magnum of the Sauvignon Le Bon in 2017 off to Iceland with me in August of last year. When my wife wanted to go and ride Icelandic horses and that kept us happy company in the evenings, two or three nights. Um, the Pinot Blanc is unusual, but it's not completely unknown. Uh, it's more common in Louis Saint-Georges than it is elsewhere. There are one or two other people who have it. Great. So uh, our Christmas tradition begins at, um, with the champagne and smoked salmon. Um, 
at six o'clock on Christmas Eve. Um, smoked salmon we now get locally. We used to get it from uh, very good smoked salmon, uh, wild Irish smoked salmon from um, Mr. Hederman of Cork. But unfortunately, one year, we, we asked him to send it to our French address and gave the postcode and so on with an F after it for France. But somehow or other, the F turned into Finland. And we had the tracking device and we tracked our uh, smoked salmon from Cork up to Dublin, from Dublin to um, uh, East Midlands uh, Airport. From East Midlands Airport, it went to uh, Brussels. From Brussels, it went to um, Helsinki. And by this time, it was sort of two days before Christmas, and we watched it try to get back. On Christmas Eve, it got as far as Lyon, but it stayed in Lyon until early January, by which time it was a fairly stinky parcel. So we had to buy local instead. Um, so anyway, we settled down then and uh, um, with the Christmas tree, light the candles. Um, Abby and I got married uh, in September of, of um, 1987, having only met three months before. And as Christmas approached, we started getting very nervous, both of us looking at each other, thinking there is one really, really important thing which we didn't discuss, wasn't part of a prenuptial agreement. Um, and if the other person is unsound on this, it could be all over so early. And it was that both of us insist on having candles on a Christmas tree rather than lights. Thank goodness it was the same issue and we both felt the same way. And we've never set fire to anything, um, <clears throat> neither during our marriage nor the Morris household when I was growing up. We're all, most of us at any rate, very clumsy people. Um, so, but you can let the candles burn right down to the holder and uh, it's never been a problem. Whereas I should probably electrocute myself with lights. Anyway, we haven't put the tree up yet this year. That's a treat in the store. Um, and then um, with our champagne and the smoked salmon and the tree, um, we put on a recording of Dylan Thomas reading his own Child's Christmas in Wales. Um, that's the, a little book form illustrated by the wonderful Edward Ardizoni. Um, but that is one of the great, great rituals. And in Dylan Thomas's incredibly rich voice, uh, it, it's sensational. So um, if you don't know it, I would urge you to go for that. Right, uh, enough then of... Um, the Christmas experience for the minute, but we will be back later with more. And I'm going to move to wine number two. A bit of indulgence here. When the good team at um, 67 Pall Mall managed to get a parcel of older wine, sometimes even before Ronan gets to hear about it, um, they let me know about the Burgundies, and I snaffle a few things to use on Zooms like this. And it's not every day that you get to taste 2002 Chablis Premier Cru, unless you've got a nice mature cellar. So while that uh, wakes up in the glass, here's our map of Chablis, lovely Chablis. Um, the town right in the middle on the river Serrain. Um, Grand Cru's off to the left, uh, sorry, to the left, off to the right above the uh, village. And Premier Cru scattered on both banks. So here we're on the left bank, um, all this area, let me get my notations going. All this area is Vaillon. Zip, 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 zip. So you're on a, something that looks like one of the South Downs in England, and where you can see the darker green in between the bits of light green, that's when you're down at the foot of the valley or coming up the reverse northeast facing slope. Um, and uh, the bit that matters to us most of all, within Vaillon, most people, wherever they've got their holdings, 
um, will label it as viable. One exception might be if you've got something else up in the, uh, this top part here, Les Lis, um, you might bottle that separately because it's really quite a different terroir and should be made apart. Um, I've virtually never seen Epinot at this end or Minot at the other end, very rarely Bernion, very rarely Chatin, almost never Rancière. So it's normally Vaillant, but the one other that does get uh, bottled separately is where I've put the heart, which is Sechet, spelled either S-E-C-H-E-R-S -E or E-R or E-T. Um, and uh, Domaine uh, Maison Drouin, uh, Domaine Drouin Vaudon have the biggest uh, holding here. Louis Michel has a decent holding. Samuel Bio makes a wonderful uh, old vine uh, bottling. Uh, Jean Sebastien Dobisa, um, a next in order of uh, size of holding. And after that comes the great Vincent Dobisa, whose wine we are about to have now. Uh, thank you, Ronan, for that. Um, now, it's, uh, it's a terrific family. There are several generations of, uh, of Dobisas uh, still in existence. Uh, Vincent's father, René, uh, is still with us in his early 90s. Vincent should have retired officially, but it just isn't going to happen. Uh, he is, I think, the same vintage as me. Um, and then his son and daughter, uh, Gisland the son, and Etienne the daughter, are beginning to get involved. But when they'll really be allowed to uh, take over, I'm not quite sure. Um, you may also know that there is a type of barrel called a feuillette, a half barrel, but it's not exactly half size. It's 132 liters uh, instead of 228, uh, which is typical to Chablis. Almost nobody uses them anymore, apart from Vincent Dovisat, who still has a good battery of them. He uses quite a bit on his Petit Chablis and Chablis, but this is the other wine that he chooses to put into Foyettes, in particular the Sechet, um, because he thinks that um, when you have a really um, chalky uh, limestone soil, this is the this is the driest of all his terroirs, if you like. Uh, he thinks that that really, really responds well to the extra aeration that you get out of these smaller casks. Because obviously the cask, you can breathe out through the cask and you've got less wine in this sort of cask than you have in, uh, uh, in a full one. And so the sachet is mostly, probably not entirely, but mostly made in the foyers. Another little anecdote on this is that when the time came up in the previous generation, to divide um, between uh, Vincent's father, um, uh, René Dovisa, and uh, René's brother-in-law, François Raveneau, when the, the generation before were dividing the vineyards up, Raveneau was supposed to get some sachet, but François Raveneau apparently never felt at ease in this vineyard, whereas René um, Dovisa loved it. So he said, look, I'll take all the sachet and you can have one of the others. I'm not sure exactly what got, got swapped. Um, but uh, those were the, the good old days of uh, the vignerons who were out there doing all the work themselves, as indeed Vincent continues, um, and, uh, and uh, often, at least in the summer months, barefoot in the vineyards, so they could feel, feel their soils. Um, so this is 2002, good vintage white burgundy in general, but even better in Chablis than the rest of white burgundy. Um, and um, I'm loving the bouquet of this because it is so, brilliantly, classically dry. Uh, the color is, is, is still absolutely fine. It's, 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 it's got yellower than it would have been. It's still got a little tint of green. Um, the bouquet has taken on a bit of what um, 
my sister, who uh, uh, is also an MW, Arabella Woodrow, when we were learning how, how to do blind tasting so we could become MWs, uh, she was very insistent on the wet wool quality of maturing Chablis. Mm. Getting mixed votes on the chat because um, some, some of you have also found this, as I do, absolutely stunning, and at least one person has, has said that uh, it's gone over the hill. Well, it may be also that, that this is an older style than you like, or it may be that your sample hasn't held up so well, or might have come from a different bottle. I'm not quite sure. Um, um, Sid, I'm sorry, I forgot to, uh, I didn't pick up your question in time on the Sapnil Burnley Guet. That is on the right-hand side um, of Savigny of the river, um, between Vergilès and where the wine we tasted came from. Um, so it's their own properties, you noted, Domaine Gaget. Apologies. Um, I'm really, really happy with this. I think it is fully mature. It will last quite a bit um, longer. Um, last year, no, it must have been in January 2018 and repeated in uh, July 2018. Um, we repeated it because the wine was just a complete knockout. With a group of friends, we went to the Tour d'Argent in uh, Paris and we had uh, the 1989 uh, Forêt, uh, Forest as he spells it, and 1989 Preurs from um, Dovisa alongside 1989, I think, Monte de Tonnerre, and 1989 Clos from Raveneau. And at that point in the evolution of those two domains, it was all Dovisa for me. And uh, those two wines were absolutely glorious. The foray was brilliant straight out of the um, bottle and stayed brilliant. And the prayers was well behind it to begin with, but ended up superior. Um, and so when we went back with some of the same people in July of, of that year, we had to have, have those two all over again. And in fact, one of my friends managed to even to find and buy a case of the prayers 89. And he's shared more bottles uh, with me since. So yes, um, Chablis can last uh, really well, really long time. But for most people, where it is today, at 18 years old, that's probably as, as far as uh, um, you wish to push it. Mm. Right. Mm. Yum. Theoretically, I'm supposed to save some of these for um, a show with my wife uh, later on. But it's going to be difficult. However, once I put the next wine in my glass, there'll be, there'll be no going back. Actually, now I've got a different glass for it. I've been asked, which is my preference, Dovisa or Raveneau? Um, in the days when it was Francois uh, Raveneau and uh, René Dovisa, they were both extremely good, and I had a preference, light preference for Raveneau. Uh, so um, Vincent Dovisa took over, I believe, in 1982, uh, and uh, Francois Raveneau uh, retired in 85, I think. And uh, then as, as the next generation got underway, I had a, a clear preference for uh, Vincent Dobissa, partly because I think Jean-Marie Raveneau is, is a man for the vineyards more than a man for the cellar. When his um, uh, brother or cousin uh, Bernard uh, got involved a little bit later, then Raveneau began to um, uh, get really back into the, the saddle. And I began to switch back fractionally towards Raveneau. And I think now 
Ravenau, uh, particularly with the building of our new cellar in 2012, they've got the next generation uh, fully involved, have taken over, um, uh, Isabel and Maxime. And uh, I think the wines are absolutely stupendous. And now I have to say, much as I love Dovisa, I have to say that Ravenau is, is, is the one that's ahead. Yeah. Good, and thank you for keeping the comments coming. I see we have people who have joined in from, from far afield, which is great. Um, and Paul's had a 79 clay in February. It was very pale colored and excellent. Well, uh, they would have used a lot of sulfur and not only that, they uh, would clean the barrels with sulfur. Um, uh, mesh is the expression in French in quite an old fashioned way. And that does explain some of the bouquet that you get particularly in the young uh, Dovisas. Good. So um, just one thing I would say is um, in the argument between uh, stainless steel Chablis and barrel Chablis, these uh, Dovis and Ravenel, of course, are in the barrel camp, but they vinify in stainless steel or other inert tanks. And it only goes to barrel in February or March of the following year, and it then stays a full 12 months uh, before it's bottled. Um, and um, neither of them, especially not Dovisa, they're not keen on any new wood. And they'll keep the barrels as long as they can before they feel that they're uh, no longer sound. Now, time to move on. Chateau Chalon. Very exciting. Uh, so we have moved an hour's drive to the east of um, Bone. Um, so Arbois is probably the main capital of the um, wine region. But a little bit south of that, you have a small village called Chateau Chalon. It's the village itself. I couldn't find them. Um, I, I thought I would have taken pictures myself, but I hadn't. Um, it is the most ridiculously beautiful, picturesque uh, village. It's set up on top of a rock, and the vineyards then slide down on several sides towards the valley of the River Say. Um, it's beautiful, and there's also um, a little um, closed valley with a village called Beaumley Monsieur. Um, uh, just beyond it. And this whole area is utterly beautiful. And if you're thinking of, um, thanks Ronan, uh, uh, if you're thinking of um, getting some cheese for Christmas, then Comte is, uh, well, it's actually my favorite everyday cheese, but it's also a favorite special cheese when you probably get a, uh, a 24 or 36 month Comte rather than the 12 or 18 month. Um, also, you can have Beaufort, Alpage, from not too far away, you know, the Savoie. But um, Comte comes from here in the Jura, and I've actually got a little bit to have alongside my Chateau Chanel. This is the classic match. Um, and um, so here it is, and here's my cheese. And um, not only is it a classic match, but it's something you should have at room temperature rather than chilled. Um, so. Mark has commented that he regularly buys the, uh, the Jura from Matt, um, which is effectively the vines that don't make it into the Chateau Chalon, but you've avoided the Chateau Chalon like the plague. So I'll be looking forward to hearing your justification of that. I have, I have 22 different references of Chateau Chalon in my cellar. I just checked this afternoon. I adore this wine. And this is terribly, terribly young. It's 2010. Chateau Chalon is a wine like other vins Jaune, which you're not allowed to put on the market until six and a third years after the harvest, um, well, effectively 1st of January in the seventh year. Um, 
and it's much better with five or preferably 10 years bottle age. So this has only had a couple of years uh, bottle age. Um, uh, and um, Macta wines, just um, Paul mentioned earlier, the 79 Clos from Bovisa, um, when having dinner with my friend Olivier Merlin and the Maconnet, he pulled out a 1979 Jean Mat, when it was Jean Mat himself making it, it's now his son Laurent. Uh, and it was just a whole different experience. Um, I'm not suggesting that the older generation was necessarily better than the younger one. I have less experience with Laurent's wines. Um, but the, unquestionably, uh, this is a style of wine that deserves bottle age. So uh, I'm going to try it now. You can see it's it's gone a little bit darker. When I pulled out my three glasses of my little metal, little glass um, bottles of the white wine samples, I was hoping the one with the dark colour was going to be the um, Jura, Chateau Chalon. So it's it spends its six and a bit years in barrel, um, or up to six years, I should say. Um, and the barrels are not topped up, <coughs> topped up, so they develop on the top of them this little floor, the same way that sherry develops floor. There was a theory that, in fact, the Spanish soldiers um, on the Spanish road up from uh, the south coast of, on the border between France and Italy, in modern terms, uh, they would then march up to the other Habsburg territories uh, through here. There's a theory that they must have brought the floor with them, but apparently that doesn't work time-wise. Mm. Wow. Yep. Apologies, I'm just having a nibble. Hmm. Um, Paul thinks the 2010 is a little bit more forward than the 2009. 2009 is a richer, more powerful uh, vintage. So that would probably explain the thought. So a touch of curry showing, yes. Curry is one of the um, markers for what, when you're being positive about it, you call ethanol. And when you're being less positive about oxidizing white burgundy, it's a compound called sotanol. Son I think I got that right. Um, which the marker for which is uh, curry powder. So that is something which uh, deliberately arrives with the extra aging. You also want to know my other favorite Chateau Chalon producers, uh, Francois Mossieu, who makes arguably the best van de paille in the region. He has just retired and I don't know what's happening after him. Um, but he has a very inexpensive by Chateau Chalon standards wine, which I like a lot. And Berthe Bondé, who are with Marc, the biggest producers, uh, also very good. Um, Damien Courbet, who's uh, one of his first forays into wine, apart from the family, was when he did uh, a stage, an internship at Morrison Burden in London, um, is good as well. And then you have plenty of people making uh, Van Schoen from a bit further afield in the Jura, like Stefan Tissot, for example, uh, but not so much in Chateau Chalon. Rachel, the oldest I have in my cellar of Chateau Chalon is a rather pathetic 1993. Um, and so I'm, I'm keeping the 96s and 2000s and so on for aging. I do have a 1957 uh, Van Jeune from the Jura. Uh, in fact, several, because that is a year of some importance for me. Um, the uh, Jean Bourdie, who has a little bit of Chateau Chalon and lots of um, Van Jeune from the Jura, they are still selling, or were last time I was at their cellar, they still had 19th century bottles, now at a fiendish price. 
and they had virtually every vintage of the 20th century available. They used to be fairly priced, but people were buying them up in some volume and then putting them immediately into auction and getting hugely more expensive prices from auction. So not surprisingly, um, the domain uh, changed it. So that is um, uh, uh, domain Jean Bordy who are in the little village of Arle. Uh, there's also the Chateau d'Arle, which in the Berry Brothers uh, cellars, I discovered some um, wines from the 1920s, which uh, I drank with Simon Berry on one occasion. Um, right. Thank you, Miriam, for your uh, Irish uh, uh, smoked salmon suggestions. Thank you very much. Um, right, yes, um, Will Hancock has mentioned Leguiche. It is the Leguiche family, as, as in Burgundy, and different branch of the family who own Chateau d'Arle. The bottle is 62 centiliters, as you saw on that picture. And at one moment, it looked as though um, the EU were going to ban it because it wasn't 75 or some multiple of 75 centiliters. And there is a story which may or may not be true, is that uh, they, a coachload of growers from the Jura stormed um, either um, Strasbourg or, or Brussels and made everybody drink Van Jaune in 62 centilitre bottles and persuade them to make an exception for that. Uh, Paul Perron, only historically, it had to be Marius Perron, uh, the chap who took over after him was very much not the same thing. Good, good. Uh, let me just check on the questions and answers. But I'm glad that we have built uh, a lot of good discussion around the Chateau Chalon. Um, I think. Um, ah, so this is just the old Chateau Chalon with escargot. Uh, the snails. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I mean, I, I, it's pretty rare that I want to eat snails, but. Um, um, Chateau Chalon with snails, why not? And the other great classic is, of course, uh, poulet au vin jaune. So you, have, you cook your um, poulet de bresse chicken in a very rich uh, sauce of sort of cream and white wine, uh, vin jaune, yellow wine. Uh, so the vin jaune from the Jura, cream and uh, mori, moral mushrooms. Um, shove it in the oven for a nice long time. And that is just an absolutely sensational uh, dish. Uh, good. Miriam, I don't think you've had uh, Chateau Chalon from Poufinet. I think it would have been Vin Jeune because he's up in Arbois. Um, but a uh, very good um, producer. They're now, of course, retired and taken over by the Marquis d'Angeville. Mm. So we will be having cheese. Um, we may easily crack a bottle of Chateau Chalon at some bottle over Christmas. I actually do have an extra excuse for. Uh, eating and drinking happily at this period because two days after Christmas happens to be my birthday and so uh, uh, a, a further feast is required. Grand, any more uh, on any of the whites? Um, Sid's just also asked, with climate change can we expect less malolactic fermentation in Chablis to preserve acidity? I don't think so. Um, a couple of people do in Burgundy but it's pretty rare to block the malolactic. But with global warming, there is so little malic acidity in the hot villages that actually it doesn't make that much difference. The length of the finish. Mark, go back and retaste. I can't believe you don't love this wine. Um, normally a very sound man on wine, but um, the length of flavour of that wine is just so exceptional. Good. Right, it's going to be a tiny bit tricky uh, for the um, 
uh, next line, the first red. So I'd almost suggest if you have got the samples, then uh, uh, retaste one of the whites, um, the other whites, if you've got it. Um, I sent a little email to the man who made uh, this red, but um, uh, he probably he only looks at his emails about once a month and I sent it this afternoon. So I don't think Jim Clendenin will be joining us. It would have been fun if he could, since it's uh, half past 10 now in his part of the US. So um, of all, I, I know the three red producers for a lot, lot longer uh, than I know the white wine producers. Uh, if you just want to scamper on to the next one and then we'll come back to the map and change my mind, Ronan. Um, let's take a little look at the man himself. This picture is him shortly after he had a haircut. You got it there, Ronan? There he is. He has a haircut about once every 25 years, whether he needs one or not. Um, I'm intrigued to know where, where that particular picture is. And he's holding a bottle of one of his, I can't see clearly enough if that is, I think that could be Knox Alexander. Failing that, it will be his other cuvee, um, the Isabel uh, cuvee. Um, Jim, I first met, it would have been in early 1987 when my neighbor here in Burgundy, uh, Becky Wasserman, uh, I wasn't then living in, in this house, I was staying in a hotel, but I'd been to see her and she thrust a glass of uh, red wine into my hands and said, what do you think of this? And I smelt it and I thought it was very young Pinot, but somebody really good. So I said, is that a Volnay from Michel Lafarge? Uh, you know, maybe 85 vintage, just sort of, sort of just bottled. And she said, nope, you got the year right, you got the grape right, but actually it's from California, it's so bon climat. And you can do one of two things. Uh, you can either um, say, oh yes, it's really very good, but you know, perhaps a little weak on the mid palate or, or perhaps not quite the length or make an excuse. Or you can sort of hop on a plane and go and discover where it came from, which is what I did. But as it happened, uh, I, I met Jim before then because he was staying in the same hotel as me, the Um in Bone. And uh, we, we met at breakfast when neither of us had very convincing French accents. And, uh, Est-ce que vous êtes Monsieur Jim Clendenin, by any chance? Um, and we've had a, a, a great, relatively competitive friendship uh, now for 35 years. Uh, but later that year, or the following year, I did get on a plane and um, I went to uh, California. Oh, and we had, actually it would have been in 88, um, because it was the summer of 88, and we started out, uh, I hadn't met my in-laws. We'd been married for six months. I hadn't yet met my in-laws because they said we're too old, we're not going to fly over from the States. Um, and they were living in Portland, Oregon. So I organized the start of the trip to go to Portland. And we, um, we met the in-laws. Um, and uh, we also attended the IPNC, the International Pinot Noir celebration at McMinnville in um, Oregon. And, and I hooked up with Jim, who, who goes or used to go to it every year. And we had a wonderful time. And then we'd organized that Jim was going to drive us all back down to California and we go tasting in his uh, uh, southern part of California. So, uh, so we left um, um, McMinnville and we stopped uh, in the, what was the town called? Eugene, Eugene, Oregon. And um, Jim nipped into a, uh, an off license and, and bought us all some beers because it was a hot day. And uh, there we were sitting in the cars having a quick slug of beer and uh, Jim suddenly said, down beers. 
So everybody hid their beers immediately. Jim had spotted a police car coming the other way. Now, me being a properly trained um, university undergraduate, if you hear somebody saying down beers, what do you do? You pick up your glass and you go, whoa, or bottle in this case. So I, down my throat it went uh, and we nearly got into trouble. But fortunately, the police decided not to do anything about it. Um, anyway, a top man and we had, had a great journey down. And ever since then, I've, I've loved uh, his wines, both the Chardonnays and the Pinots. You can have the map back. Uh, thank you. So this is the Santa Maria Valley AVA. If you went down from here, down and a bit left, you would be in the Santa Rita Hills. Down and a bit right, you'd be in the Santa Inez Valley, where the lovely um, San and Benedict uh, vineyard is. So here, this particular wine comes partly from the Biancido vineyard, which is marked, and partly from Jim's own plantation, um, which is called Le Bon Climat, which, if I remember rightly, uh, is about where the O&N of Solomon in Solomon Hills Vineyard is. Um, the key to this area, which this map shows quite nicely, you see on the left, uh, you, you, you situate it where it is within California. But pretty much from Alaska down to Tierra del Fuego, there is a line of mountains which run parallel with the coast the whole way. And the only times that gets properly broken is either San Francisco Bay, um, and therefore the bottom of Napa Valley, Carneros and so on, uh, it's relatively cool, or just here, because you can see that um, coming in through um, here, you've actually got uh, a valley, the Santa Maria Valley, where the cool air gets sucked in, and this is really noticeably cooler than most other parts. And then you've got the mountains, they're not quite east-west instead of north-south, but, but they sort of are. So here you've got the range of hills, um, Santa Rita Hills, and here you've got another range of hills. And um, between those two, and again, a, a little bit south of there, you get this cool air sucked in. So it does really work well for Pinot Noir and indeed for Chardonnay. Though you can do almost anything, in fact. And what's weird about Biennacido is in adjacent blocks, you've got Syrah and uh, Pinot. And in one block, Jim is making his Pinot, which will be picked in August. And in the next door uh, block, um, his friend Bob Linquist, formerly of Coupe, um, will be making his Syrah, which he'll pick in November. But they are, so, I, I mean, where they meet, they're adjacent rows of vines. This, of course, is also the area made famous by the film Sideways. Uh, because it was all in and around this area that uh, the chap who wrote the book um, on which the film is based um, uh, was doing all his research and getting drunk and having to be pulled out of the Hitching Post um, restaurant late at night. Uh, and uh, in uh, American English, apparently, that uh, as you as you stagger out drunkenly, it's uh, you're you're going out sideways, uh, which is where the title for the film came from. So there you go. Anyway. Um, two of Jim's um, top cuvées are named after his children, Isabel Morgan and Knox Alexander. Um, uh, Isabel the girl is the older, so her first vintage was 1994. Uh, I still have a magnum of that, which uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to. And then the Knox Alexander bottling came along a little bit later on. So Isabel Morgan is the richer and more powerful and slightly uh, more oaky cuvée. And the Knox Alexander comes from two plots, really, part being the Cedo Vineyard and um, planted, these clones were planted in 97, I think, and part from Le Bon Climat, also in Dijon clones. 
um, uh, which was planted in uh, 1984. So um, Jim is also extremely proud of having got the lowest ever scoring wine in the Wine Spectator. His 1987 um, Wonky Mar Chardonnay scored 57 points. It was a good wine then, and it's still a good wine now. I may have mentioned this before. So um, this is lighter in colour than the Isabel would be. It's just beginning to show a tiny bit of maturity at the edge, but not a lot. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful maturing Pinot. We're, we are just moving on from um, the first useful Pinot, but we're not yet getting to uh, any tertiary aromatics, so the secondary at most. And with very good finesse and also still good acidity. And one of the reasons for choosing this wine, or the thing that put it into my head, because the real reason is I chose it because I love it, is that those of you who are going to have turkey for Christmas, then I think there is nothing better than um, Newell Pinot, but probably most specifically American Pinot from either Oregon or the cool parts of California. Uh, not the Russian River style, um, you know, nothing that gets up at the 14s and 15s. Um, this wine is labeled at 13.5, um, but you need to have that freshness. And you almost get in the fruit profile when they're young, you get a cranberry feel, which of course, a classic to go with your turkey. Um, we never have turkey at Christmas, um, uh, joint decision on that, but we have goose. Um, and that's also uh, one of the reasons why uh, we have our two meals, because in the years when we, right at the start, we only had one main meal. And we just found that to have um, oysters uh, or salmon, particularly, such, um, we stopped having oysters fairly early on, um, pate, goose, cheese, Christmas pudding, port, etc. different wines, was all too much. And the goose is such a rich uh, meat that we now have the goose on Christmas Day and something much simpler as the, the meat course on Christmas Eve. Um, and the joy of goose is that, of course, you get all the goose fat for roasting your potatoes in the weeks and months to come. Uh, but you also, with any spare meat, if there is any, you can make goose rissoles. And I think that the rissole is one of the world's greatest food types, which is underestimated, um, i.e. anybody not familiar in your cultures with, with rissoles, they're basically potato cakes, uh, probably a little bit of parsley or something like that, a bit of onion, and then lots of minced up meat from whatever's been left over of your bird or joint. And um, so that's the second usage. And the third usage, Whereas I adore the skin of chicken or many other uh, birds or, or, or meats um, and gobble it all up at the time, goose has such a lot of fat under the skin that the, uh, the skin itself isn't quite the same enjoyment to eat when you have the, the main roast. So what you can do, however, is you keep a lot of the skin and you slice it up into strips and you then uh, render it afterwards in a little frying pan so that the remaining fat disappears and you have this sort of goose um, crisp skin like uh, almost like pork scratchings but with goose and you then slice that up and put that onto your salad in the next few days when you want otherwise lighter food so there we go um yeah mark i'm with you on that 30 plus years 
Paul's asked if I had any of Jim's very old Chardonnay, like uh, something they they saw in recent years. Um, they aged brilliantly up to '95 was the first vintage when I started doubting the aging, and frankly, I was getting premature oxidation in my California Chardonnays at exactly the same time that I was getting it in white Burgundy. Uh, so I've still got some Sanford and Benedict '95 um, sitting around. I've still got a bottle of '89 somewhere. Uh, so I need to try them again. Um, the 87, I had my last voltage uh, bottle of the straight village Chardonnay uh, only a year or so ago. And even though you know, it wasn't designed to be a long aging wine, it was still very much alive and kicking. So I would reckon, unless in the period of, of slight um, premature oxidation, I really, really rate those wines long-term aging. Jasper, we kind of all know you as a Burgundy guy, but when I first came to London, Morrison Verdon had some of the most interesting Californian wines, uh, Bob yes. Lindquist and Paul Draper. So maybe tell us a bit about that. Uh, thank you for that that, um, that plug. Uh, oh, and you've made me realise that we should have had a, a Paul Draper wine in, uh, in next week's uh, Zoom with, with Jane Anson. But uh, um, yes, so it started purely because the logo of Morrison Verdon was a map of France with a Burgundy-shaped bottle in it. Um, and originally we only did French wines, and then I started with California purely on the grounds of Aubon Climat. And after that, we picked up Bonnie Dune and Ridge and Frog Sleep, um, whose motto is Time's Fun When You're Having Flies. Um, and they also, the Frog Sleep, uh, the bottom of the bottles, they had a very useful little um, um, statement at the right at the bottom of the label. Um, bottom of the bottle saying open other end which is very helpful of them um, but uh, but Ridge was is one of the absolute great um, wineries of any region in the world and knowing Paul Draper has been a, a, a huge honour um, a man of a great deal of depth of humanity, intelligence, philosophy um, whether he's the most intelligent I'm not sure because Randall Graham is pretty intelligent and Jim Clendenham probably would be my pick of the three but there are three people of, of a rare and brilliant um, uh, intelligence. It's been an uh, extraordinary privilege. Oh, hang on, I know who's going to be upset with that. John Williams of Frog's Leap is very far from being uh, uh, unintelligent. He's also something of a philosopher. And then we also work with David Ramey, uh, another one. And then there's Bob Lindquist of Cupé. So yeah, oh, it was, it was an absolute thrill uh, to work with those guys. Um, Good. Mark has pointed out Frog Sleep also had Ribbit on the cork. Um, I'm, uh, we're a bit behind our usual timing tonight. I apologise for that, but I'm having such fun talking through these wines with you that I haven't been uh, um, catching up with my normal speed. I think that wine is in a beautiful place to drink now. It'll hold, but if you've got some, and they're not vastly expensive. They haven't changed hugely in price since I first knew them. Um, and um, they're shipped by um, uh, BBR FMV, so you can find them there. Okay, I don't know who ships Sean Mack into the UK, but if you're um, worth having a little look, or you just go and, and see them when you're coming to Burgundy. So I say it's only an hour to get to the Jura, to go to Chateauchamp and Arbois, and the other thing which connects uh, this region with me for Christmas is that one of the world's truly great chocolatiers um, is in Arbois, 
uh, right in the middle of the, well, it's more of a village than a town. Um, they're sort of, uh, it's called Persinger. I put it on the chat, so you've got the name. Um, they're not really much more expensive than any other um, sort of local chocolatier, but it's it's three-star Michelin quality. It's just absolutely superb. Um, so I recommend them. On we go. Now, you may be surprised that I've put the Grand Cru from the Cote de Nuit before the village, not the village, the premier crew from the Cote de Bone, but part of my campaign to promote the Cote de Bone, but it's also a question of the vintages uh, involved. So, Chivry-Chambertin, we know Chivry-Chambertin, we know the Grand Cru's, um, and uh, Charme-Chambertin, which gets a bum rap because there's too much of it. If you have all the Charme-Chambertin, you're also allowed to call Masway Chambertin uh, Charme, that makes 30 hectares in all. That's quite a lot for a single Grand Cru, and it ain't all the same. Uh, Denny's holding is going to be, um, it's pretty much here. Um, as you go down that little dirt road. Uh, there's a, a patch around there, Seraphans close by, and also Shows of Roti, where they all have um, uh, terrific um, um, ancient vines. So the oldest of the old vines here uh, probably come from the end of the 19th century, and the younger vines, apart from where they replant uh, dead vines, were planted by Denny's grandmother and great aunt in the 1920s. So, you know, the, these are properly old vines and Joseph Rates are just as old and Seraphines are not much less old. Um, so, so there we have it. Good, thank you. Um, let me, ooh, sorry, my annotation back removes the hearts. Uh, thanks, that covers us for Joseph uh, Chambertin. And I put it in my glass. Um, has just apologised for something and I can't work out what but uh, maybe I said something which sounded as I needed apologising for didn't mean to Denis Bachelet Charme Chambertin so this is one of my very very first discoveries enjoyments in Burgundy and as usual it was uh, my now neighbour, Becky Wasserman, who, who put me in touch with Denny. Uh, it was the 1981 vintage, when Denny would have been 17 or 18. His grandfather recently died, uh, so it was pretty much Denny who, who made the wine. 81 was a filthy vintage for Red Burgundy, and that 81 Chambertin was just a completely, truly gorgeous, lovable wine. Probably be past it by now, but I went on to probably had it last maybe no more than 10 years ago when it would have been nearly 30 years old from a very very rainy vintage it was just a great wine and i loved his Charme Chambertin pretty much ever since um some of you will have been there but um some uh, a good friend suggested that when my uh, book inside burgundy came out we should all meet at the Ledbury, take over the restaurant have a burgundy lunch everybody could bring their own wines and lots of you brought the Denis Bachelet Charme Chambertin. Um, probably the oldest on that occasion we had was 85 or 88. Uh, those were glory days for Denis Bachelet. Um, I checked I, when I, I did a vertical of Denis Charme and the 2006 actually showed really well amongst the not totally famous vintages. Um, so I gave it, um, um, it, it showed better than the seven and the eight, for example. Um, 
and I gave it, gave it lots and lots of stars and uh, liked it very much indeed. Um, but um, so the usual generous burst of deep red fruit, middle weight only in 2006, good acidity, some structure, a hint of a tiny bit of torrefaction on the wood. Otherwise, this display is one of the best noses of the tasting. So it was a vertical tasting, tasting going back to the mid-1980s, I think, in 2013. So young wine then. And it's still got a really, really beautiful uh, bouquet, which is just has this burst of deep, dark raspberry fruit. A uh, couple of chocolate notes in there. Um, Denny slightly lost the thread very briefly, 2009, 10, 11, 9 and 11 worst, 2010 a bit, when he got a bad batch of barrels. And the wines like Chambre Chambertin, which had a bigger proportion of new wood, um, probably suffered most. I'm still hoping that eventually the fruit will leap up and, and, and cover the, the very smoky taste of that period. Um, we had an awkward moment when uh, myself and my neighbour, we went to see him and said, look, Denny, there's a problem here. You don't necessarily want to recognise it, but you're going to lose your reputation in the marketplace. You need to recognise it and you need to throw it. Whatever's caused it, and then he told us about this barrel issue, uh, you need to resolve it and throw those barrels out. So from probably 12 onwards, there's no longer that problem uh, at all. This Paul, you're right. It was Howard. I had remembered that who bought the bottle of uh, brought along the bottle of '85. I think I may have brought the '88 on that occasion. Mm. Well, I have to say, 2006 is now an ignored vintage rather than a distinct vintage. It wasn't great in the Cote de Bern, too much rainfall. It got better as you went further north in the Cote de Marie. Actually, that's not quite true because Nuit Saint-Georges played a blinder that year for reasons I don't fully understand. I think the rainfall missed out on Nuit Saint-Georges. Chambord had a weak year, but Chivray had much less rain and did very well. Um, I would put Nuit first and Chivray second as my favourite villages for 06. This is still very, very young. The acidity is still there, but the wealth of fruit and the enjoyment of the flavours already are terrific. Um, so there will be some bottles of this in the cellars now at 67 pound mile. So next time you're dining there, uh, see if you can snag one um, and, um, and invite me to join you when I'm able to travel again. Well. Mm. Yum. Very happy with that, but we're nearly after our first hour. We can go on. So this is the wine which is possibly one of the gambles of the evening because the red wine unquestionably of which I have the most in my cellar is the Volnay Centenaire du Midia Domaine des Complafonds. Here we have a map, not of Volnay, but of Merceau because as many of you will know, um, the Centenaire vineyard is actually in uh, Merceau. Um, but because it's a red wine vineyard, you are allowed to put Volnay on the label. And you can see this Les Centenaires, well, first of all, Les Centenaires du Milia, that was a tête cuvée back in 1855. And I was before that, 1831, Dr. Morale mentions it as a tête cuvée. Uh, below you've got Centenaires de Sioux, which is sliding down the slope. Uh, just above is Les Centenaires Blanc, 
which oddly enough is red wine rather than white wine. And next to that, um, uh, to the south is Les Pures, uh, which is if people do have a Merceau Sontenay white, it will typically be in Les Pures. Um, last night with the Zoom I did uh, uh, elsewhere, uh, we tried Ben LaRue's uh, Volnay Sontenay 2018, and it was the wine of the evening. Way too young, of course, but it was absolutely stunning. So Sontenay, particularly from the Milieu, and the Lafons have got the biggest share with nearly four hectares. After that, Jacques Prieur have got a very good holding, including the Claude Sontenay and the Hospice de Bone also have vineyards here. Um, but that is really the heart of it. Uh, Arnaud has got some too. Um, and it comes on big slabs, larves, they call them, of uh, clay. So it is a much more solid wine, uh, a few more tannins, and certainly greater aging potential. Most Volnay, I think, does age very well, but uh, uh, this more than any others. Thanks, Ronan. Um, so, right at the start, uh, this got rave reviews for its exceptional intensity and power. But the slight query was the extraction in it and um, the amount of tannins which have come out of that extraction. And I think Dominique would say himself that he might have over-extracted it. Now, it's not necessarily a disaster forever, but it does mean you have to wait a very long time. Last 1976s, in my opinion, only got ready at 40 years on. And here we're just at 15 years on. The colour, obviously it doesn't have purple in it, but it's still a brisk and youthful red. I get a little bit of that leatheriness on the nose, which is always an indicator of tannins to follow. And you get both tannins and quite high acidity on the palate. So it's not ready to drink yet. It's the least ready, it's the oldest, but it's the least ready of our three wines. Um, I still think it will definitely come together. Um, but uh, not, for, not for a while yet. Um, so um, I, I give it a thumbs up in terms of potential, but, but as I say, not for me um, tonight. Um, I absolutely adored both the other reds tonight. And I think maybe by the time I get to the end in an hour's time, uh, when we polish off the rest of that sample, I think it will be speaking to us as well. Hmm. Good. Well, while I've still got you all uh, with us, do ask any last questions, make any final comments, or I will ask Martina, who's waiting patiently behind the scenes, to put the poll up. And those of you who've got the wines, you have two, uh, two choices to uh, vote for, as usual. And I'm going to make my choices. And... I've submitted my choices. Please vote away if you have the wines, or if you don't and feel like voting. I'll count down from five and then we will get the results. Five, four, three, two, one. Finish voting. Martina, tell us. Tell us what the news is. So it looks as though everybody's got some votes. Uh, good. So in fourth equal, we have the first and the last wines. Uh, then in fifth equal, that must be. In fourth place, we have Mr. Dovisar's uh, Chablis Sachet, uh, which I came very close to voting for, but didn't. In second equal, we have one of my votes, the Chateau Chalon and Denis Bachelet's Chambertin. And first, also a vote of mine, 
uh, has trounced the French in the in the judgment of, uh, of Pall Mall. Uh, we have Mr. Jim Clendenon's Aubon Climat Knox Alexander. So uh, I'm very happy with that result. He will be very happy. Um, I'm not a chauvinist in favour of uh, my beloved Burgundy. And um, Jim is also so well known with all the producers that uh, they won't resent him having got a good result. Um, now, two events next week. Uh, are they all both next week? Yes, the 14th and 17th, they're both next week. Anyway, but those two dates, um, mark them in your calendar when I should be doing a double act with my friend Jane Anson. Um, the first is the warm-up act, when we choose three wines each, which come from neither her region nor my region. Uh, I, I sort of wish that I had, had gone for a, uh, a Ridge Montebello, but I didn't. But then I also wanted to avoid uh, Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot. Uh, my three choices are a Riesling from Heyman Lovenstein, uh, whose daughter, Sarah, did a, did a great tasting for 67 earlier this year. Um, I have also chosen um, a Cabernet Franc from the Loire, because that is one of our absolute go-to whenever we're bored with Pinot. That's my other grape that I love so much. And finally, uh, I've gone with Vega Sicilia, which again was one of our Morrison Verdin uh, agencies from, from outside France. And Jane has gone also with Spain with a white Rioja. I'm trying to do this from my head. I may not remember her other choices. She's gone for a Northern Rhone, which again, I would love to have had, but uh, she chose that first. And uh, her other red escapes me for the moment. So you'll have to join us to find out. Uh, that's the 14th. And then on the 17th, we meet again with a, a battle of six wines each. She's chosen six Bordeaux. I've chosen six Burgundies. Uh, they're slightly smaller samples, uh, I think 20 CL um, or something like that. Um, but um, um, the point of that is that we will have a little longer. We'll do it over an hour and a half. Uh, it's not going to be an aggressive rivalry, but we both have the chance to show wines that we absolutely adore from our own regions. And we hope that many of you will get the samples for that. Uh, we've done them in the smaller size in order for it not to be ludicrously expensive. Um, and I think that is going to be just the most fascinating evening. So join us for one or for the other or for both. Um, and I think I have one more question to answer now. Having a little look at my question and answers. Um, been asked, why do winemakers want to make wines that require a long time to age before drinking? They can choose to make it approachable in younger age. Yes, they can, and many people are. And the thing is, when you make them so that they can age for a long, long time, then typically the shape of the graph, it's, it's like a, um, a bell-shaped curve. And the longer it takes to get to the final end, the higher the curve goes. And I think that that is when you get the most exciting wines of all. And given that most of what we talk about in these Zooms are top-end wines, I think it's, it's a shame not to make them to be the greatest they can be when they hit maturity. Sometimes you end up making them uh, longer lived than you actually meant to, which would be the case, case with that 2005. Um, and uh, I mean, in fact, Ming, in uh, another answer to your question on the chat, Mark has said he loved the Dosa, and it might need to age his uh, Chablis even longer. I love the fact that wines age so well. Um, you know, I started in on this business when I was quite young, 
uh, and I started laying down wines. No, I've drunk most of them. I still have some bottles, possibly even from the 80s and certainly from the 90s, that I bought on Primeur right away at the first opportunity. And I've had the thrill and pleasure of owning those bottles all that time um, and thinking about how good they're going to be when they're ready. And then even more the excitement of opening them and then spending several years, because typically my philosophy was to buy wines where I could afford to buy a case, not buy wines where I could only afford to buy one or two bottles. Uh, so I, I would buy where I could afford to buy a bit of volume, and then you can see that wine change over the years. And there's nothing more exciting than that. And much best, of course, is to um, drink your wine with food. And I'm just going to raise a glass to one of the wine world's most special people. He's not a very well-known name. He is in France, but not outside. And he just died. I just heard about it earlier today. Uh, at the age of 93, he, he died of COVID. Um, and he was, I, I saw him about this time last year, it was the last time I saw him, and he was full of energy. Physically, he was fine, moving around with no difficulty at all. And his brain was absolutely sharp and his wisdom and philosophy were unbelievable. He's, he's called Jacques Puiset. He founded the Institute, du, the, so the Institute of Taste in France. He was a founder member of the uh, Académie du Vin International, International Wine Academy, which is uh, where I would meet him every year. And he's just one of those people who, from the first moment you meet him and every time he speaks, you just think, this is a special person. So I'm going to raise my glass to Jacques Bizet. Um, terrific, terrific person. Thank you, Martina, behind the scenes. Thank you, Ronan, for the introduction. Thank you, Thank you very much, Jasper. Uh, but make a special effort to join us, certainly on the 14th and even more certainly on the 17th, because uh, you'll get another redhead. You'll get uh, Jane alongside me and um, we will have some excellent badinage. So, great. We See you next time. We had a webinar last night with Jane, and she's very much looking forward to it. So it's going to be a fun night. Both of them are going to be fun. But yeah. Good, good, good. Okay. Thank you, Jasper. Good night, and go and enjoy some food. So yeah. thank you both. Thank you all, and see you next time. Bye-bye.